Hey folks, please indulge me a, a brief special comment before today's episode. Doing this show is a great privilege, and with that privilege comes an obligation. My goal with these shows is to learn and to make sense of the world. As I sat with my daughter last Wednesday evening, watching events unfold at our nation's capital and trying to answer her many questions, not much made sense. What are we watching? She kept asking. And the only answer I knew to be correct was, we're watching history. Like many of you, I've been reading and listening and thinking a lot these last few days. One of the most profound things I read was from The Atlantic's Anne Applebaum. She wrote, We have promoted democracy in our movies and books. We speak of democracy in our speeches and lectures. We even sing about democracy from sea to shining sea in our national songs. We have entire government bureaus devoted to thinking about how we can help countries become and remain democratic. We fund institutions that do the same. And yet by far the most important weapon the the United States of America has ever wielded in defense of democracy, in defense of political liberty, in defense of universal rights, in defense of the rule of law, was the power of example. In the end, it wasn't our words, our songs, our diplomacy, or even our money or our military power that mattered. It was rather the things we had achieved, the two and a half centuries of peaceful transitions of power, the slow but massive expansion of the franchise, and the long, seemingly solid traditions of civilized debate. So, as our leaders resumed their work on Wednesday night, we heard many of them declare, this is not who we are. Well, right now I'm not so sure. In some ways, this is precisely who we are, or what we've allowed ourselves to become. The only way the arc of history bends towards justice is if we do the bending. So I urge all of you, all of us, if you don't think what you saw on Wednesday is who we are, what are you doing to fix that? It's going to take all of us, and it's going to take grace. Okay, thanks for listening. Now on to the show. But if you imagine yourself, you know, with a six-figure contract on the Nike campus running on the Michael Johnson track where Phil Knight can look out his window and see you every day, you know, you are in the most legit program that there is on earth with the most powerful coach. And you just don't go into that relationship assuming that he might lead you astray. But he did. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today we continue our healthy sports series by examining how many of the questions and issues raised in the last two episodes exist at the highest level of sport. In this case, elite professional running. Matt Hart is a former professional athlete turned investigative journalist. His reporting on questionable practices by elite coaches, doctors, and their runners 
produced front-page stories in the New York Times, as well as his recently published debut book, Win at All Costs. Matt and I discussed the role of sport in our society, the risks and trade-offs facing athletes, and the abuse of coaching power at the hands of Alberto Salazar, former head coach of the Nike Oregon Project. Matt is a dear friend. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that you do too. So now I bring you Matt Hart. So I'm here today with Matt Hart, investigative journalist, author of Win at All Costs, Inside Nike Running and Its Culture of Deception. Matt, so good to reconnect. So good to have you on the podcast and hear your voice. Thanks for being here. Yeah, Justin. Thanks for having me. You know, actually, I was thinking about it this morning. Like, we actually led parallel lives for a while. I mean, you went to a rival high school in New Hampshire. We didn't actually know each other. You lived in San Francisco when I did after college, but we didn't know each other. We lived in Seattle concurrently for a while and then finally met in like 2004. And yeah, it's just so wonderful to, to see, to follow your writing and your success and your career progression, but also congratulations on getting this, this incredible piece of journalism and reporting out. I mean, it is, it is a piece of work. Um, How do you feel having published your first book? I mean, it feels great, you know, when you work on anything for three plus years, just to have finally completed it um, feels like a win on some level, Um, you know, and and I can honestly admit if it wasn't for my editors, my great editors at HarperCollins, I probably never would have published it. You know, I wish I would have just tinkered probably till I died. (laughs) But at some point when you have a book contract, they're like, all right, it's time. You've got to stop being neurotic and uh, let us send this out into the world. And so, yeah, it feels great. Awesome. Well, I think listeners should probably, I think listeners might like learning a little bit about your backstory. I mean, when we met, you were in the software industry working at Microsoft and left to become a professional athlete and now a writer. Talk about your career choices because they're not how one would draw them up in the career offices of a, of a university like the one I work in. Yeah. I, after graduating school, I, I did a work abroad program and um, found actually the, the last year, my last year at the University of New Hampshire where I went to school, I, I found myself just enamored with computers and wasn't studying computer science, was studying um, media studies and communication and journalism. And so I kind of got sidetracked my senior year, just became sort of obsessed with how computers work and, and did a work abroad program where I worked on computers and came back and uh, eventually through San Francisco and the internet boom, got a job at Microsoft. And that's when we met, you know, that was, if, if you're, if you remember correctly that we met in 04, I didn't quite remember that, but uh, yeah, worked there through the end of 05, I think. And just, you know, I was the, I felt like a corporate drone a little bit at Microsoft. Yep. And, um, you know, I had, I had been writing, although I, I couldn't see that far down river yet. Um, you know, when we met, I was obsessed with ultra running and adventure racing. And Yeah. And you were writing great stuff on your blog. I mean, that, that became kind of a go-to place for adventure athletes in the Northwest, as I recall. Yeah. Yeah. That was really fun. I wrote a little bit for mountainzone.com when they were out. And, you know, I had a, a hit here or there that, I don't know, felt like something, but in hindsight was probably nothing. But either way, it was enough to sort of uh, put the seed in my brain and, and spur me on. And then, you know, I left Microsoft with a little bit of money in the bank to try to, you know, run an adventure race professionally. And 
you know, that was, I mean, ultimately, objectively to look back, pretty unsuccessful, but um, it was, <laughs> I kept afloat, you know, I, I could say that. And it I depends coached. on how you define success, right? Like, yeah, yeah, totally. You, you shifted your career effectively, and and now you, you know you're 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 an author, and so that you could say it's a success of a sort, right? Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's just a little bit of false self-deprecation because you know that was running has brought me almost everything good in my life, and so that time period, I didn't have any money to save, but I, I also didn't go into debt. And it was 10 years of, you know, running in the mountains with you and other friends and really exploring what I could do physiologically. And it turns out I'm not killing Journey. Um, and that's okay. You know, the effort right. to try to become someone of that caliber, you know, brought me all the good things that are in my life now. So, you know, it's probably a failure, but I don't look at failure. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, it was a necessary step and I'm so happy it happened and I would, you know, I'd do it all over again. And so one of the things I always thought about you, Matt, and I got to sort of put this the right way, but you know, when you became, you know, when you sort of started focusing on your athletic pursuits, I sort of felt like, I think Matt needs a little bit more than that. I think he needs more sort of intellectual engagement and you, you quickly kind of got into your writing and got into your coaching and, I remember like rides and runs, like we would talk about some of these gray areas in sport that you report on in your book so well, and we'll kind of get to the details of that. But like, at what point, I mean, you're interested in endurance, obviously, but you're also sort of interested in the culture and the norms and the rules and kind of how humans uh, interact with trying to maximize their own performance. How did you kind of get interested in those topics in general? Yeah, I mean, you were really there to discuss these topics with me when they were sort of fomenting in my brain. I mean, it really spurred from, you know, trying to be the best athlete that I could be. And of course, you know, the logical thing to do is read every training manual you can and try to understand human physiology. And then when I was coaching other athletes, testing things on them and myself. And, and then of course, you know, we were kind of coming up at the time where, you know, Lance Armstrong put on a black hat, you know, went from the hero to the villain in our time. And you and I discussed this ad nauseum. Uh, uh, I know oh, yeah. I can, I can remember those around us telling us to, you know, choose another topic <laughs> at some point. Um, but I was just, I mean, as you were, I think I was just so burned by, you know, you know, I was wearing a yellow wristband and uh, I really had bought into uh, this whole fable. And, and so I was really just trying to work out right and wrong. And then of course, coming up in a sport with really uh, ultra running with, very few rules. Um, and, you know, at, I don't know if you remember, but I had, uh, you know, a bout of overtraining syndrome, many, actually, probably more than one, but that led me to a doctor that offered me testosterone. And so I have in my past these first hand, first person experiences with a lot of the situations the Nike athletes found themselves in, where they're being, I mean, testosterone is just illegal, you know, but the way it was proposed to me by the doctor, He's like, well, your sport doesn't test. You know, if you get tested, you'll you'll fail a drug test. That's kind of how he said it to me. And of course, I said no thanks. And I knew enough about testosterone levels and energy levels, and to know that if I lessen my training and I eat right and I sleep better and I stop drinking so much coffee, that my body will rebound from this. I don't need testosterone to bring it back to into the normal range. And so, you know, I mean, all that to say that 
so much of this story I had, I'd felt like I had a first person touch of, and I had struggled with some of these same questions. I mean, it wasn't even really a struggle for me. I mean, as you and I discussed back in the day, I mean, that was just cheat, you know, EPO and testosterone are cheating. Yeah. It seemed like bright lines around those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. But I was interested in, you know, the nuance of this because it's not super clear with the other substances, L-carnitine is an amino acid. It's not a banned substance. You know, athletes with legitimate asthma should be on Advair and and some of these other drugs. Um, and so I, I, that's, that's why I thought the story of the Oregon Project was so interesting, just because he, they were constantly grappling with these um, questions of gray area substances and tactics. And, uh, you know, eventually they stepped over the line enough times to be banned, Alberto Salazar and Dr. Jeffrey Brown. And now the team's been shuttered. But you know, I'd really just found these topics, uh, sort of the, this moral line of where athletes were willing to go and where they weren't willing to go. And then the, kind of the fear around, you know, speaking truth to a big brand and the, and the, and the, and the most powerful coach uh, in the sport. I, I just was enamored with the story. And once I got a hold of it, I just kind of kept reporting, even without, you know, I you know, didn't have a, a book deal at the beginning. But the more I reported, the more I realized, oh, there's, there's a real story here. Yeah, so let's talk about kind of how you got on the story. I mean, interested in the topics as we just discussed, but um, you know, you received a, kind of a secret tranche of documents, right? Like, how, how did this all happen? It seems yeah. very kind of, um, yeah. There's some like high drama and high mis- mystery involved in, in what happened. I'm sure you can only tell us so much, but yeah, how did this unfold? Yeah, I mean, I keep the source of the document a secret, but um, you know, kind of how it went down was. I mean, first of all, I should say, as someone who's interested in these topics, when I started to write, my journalistic curiosity was, you know, kind of pointed at these things from endurance sports in general to uh, doping. And, and, you know, I had done some reporting around, you know, an Italian athlete who doped in ultra running and I'd written a story for the Atlantic about Lance Armstrong and Floyd Landis's $100 million lawsuit. And so I was, I was in this world of um, you know, someone who wrote about these things. And basically, I mean, that's the simplest reason why I was sent this USB document because the person who had it sent it to me thinking, maybe you can do something about it. I mean, were you the only person that was sent this? No, no. I mean, it was subsequently published afterwards. Okay. But I, 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 you know, I mean, it's hard, uh, it's impossible for me to know, but when I reached out to, you know, Runner's World and and the New York Times, uh, I said to them, you know, disabuse me of the idea that I'm the only one in the media with this file, but I'd really like to write about it for you. And part of me assumed, oh, Juliet McCurr at the Times is probably already working on this. You know, someone, someone even, you know, even deeper and with more experience right. than me probably already has this. And so I actually reached out to Julia and she never responded, but she forwarded me to her editor who then, of course, made made the piece happen and no one in America in American journalism sports journalism seemed to have their hands on the file and so you know then it was a process of like all right what's the angle what's the story here the the times of London I should say seemed to either have a partial copy or they figured out what was in it and they wrote a couple very eurocentric and mofara centric pieces uh-huh. um, but they barely made an impression here you know uh, and so when I got my hands on it, it was, it was sort of obvious that, you know, the news really hadn't broken over here. And then, of course, the Times put it on the front page of the paper when it, when we did publish it. So Yeah, I mean, tell us about that. I mean, <laughs> front page, 
report uh, in the New York Times. I mean, that relative, I mean, you had written some great stuff up to that moment, but that was a moment of pretty significant breakthrough for you. Um, how did it unfold? How did you sort of know that the New York Times is going to publish it in such a prominent way? Yeah, I had no idea until it came out that it was going to be on the front really? page, actually. Yeah. I think if you work there, you know, you can you can fight for A1, as they say, or front page above sure. the fold. And if you go into the editorial meetings, um, you know, maybe you have a say. But I had no say and no insight. I mean, my editor at the Times told me, um, he, when he told me it was going to be in the newspaper, I was excited about that because I, sure. I wanted to pick, go pick one up. And I had never written, you know, I was a magazine writer. I had never even written news for a newspaper. And it's funny because he asked me, how old are you, Matt? <laughs> I was like, I don't know, I was 43 at the time. He's like, oh, okay, I get it. Because, you know, he assumed if I'm in my early 30s or even 20s that I just wouldn't care if it came out in the newspaper. But right, I really yeah, wanted what, a copy. What's that? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to hold on to it. And I knew the cover meant something, but I just didn't, you know, I didn't imagine that. Um, he would, they would publish it on the front page. So, I mean, I was pretty shocked the day that it came out. Um, and, and so you wrote some subsequent pieces and, you know, it, also in the times and in other places. And then at what point right. did the, the sort of idea of like, how did you decide this has to go from, you know, a series of, of, uh, periodical articles to a book? Like, I really need to do this in a book. How was that decision process? Yeah. That was pretty interesting. I mean, you know, trying to sort of follow this imaginary Krakauer-esque sort of career path, um, you know, where you write for a major magazine and a story becomes interesting enough that it launches a book or a book idea. I had, I mean, for years I've had my feelers out um, for my book idea, you know, this imagined uh, launch into being coming an author. And so I was keen to figure out if this was ready to go. But really, you know, talking to Kara Goucher behind the scenes, when I was working on the New York Times piece, you know, just the courage that she had, I, I thought to myself, you know, I can, I can build a book around her story for sure. But then as I kept digging, I mean, honestly, I haven't been saying this, but I'm ready to say it now. There was just, so I'm, I'm rigorously trying to figure out, I'm, I'm interrogating the facts, as they say. And, I, and, you know, I would have been just as happy to report, you know, that the media had gotten it all wrong or Salazar should be exonerated. You know, I really tried to go at it, you know, objectively as I possibly could. But almost immediately, you know, I'm confronted with people who are desperate to not let the story get out and angry at me. And, and you, I mean, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Uh, I mean, any journalist's spidey senses would start to tingle. And I was like, oh, there's way more here than people know. And, and yeah. that's when I started to realize, oh, I mean, Kara's whole story definitely hadn't been told. And then uh, other people who, you know, were just uh, angry and acting weird. And, you know, if you're a clean athlete, why on earth wouldn't you just talk to the guy who's writing about it for the New York Times and sort of just clear your chest and get it out there. But, you know, people were very scared and that was obvious really early on. And I just thought, oh, that this whole cake is, is uh, this, all these ingredients will make a whole cake. So. Indeed. So let's, <laughs> I'm feeling those flashbacks of conversations where other people in the room said, Hey, you guys talk about something else. <laughs> and, and, and maybe the reason being is because we, we, we might've left some listeners behind. Like I want to make sure we sort of set the stage here for those listeners that don't know the details of this story, 
I mean, let's start. Like, what is where? What was the Nike Oregon project, and who is Alberto Salazar? Let's just sort of yeah. give us the give us the the set the stage for us. Yeah. So Alberto Salazar is a Cuban-born American who um, became basically one of America's best runners. Uh, definitely one of our our best marathoners. You know, he went, you know, after the fame of Steve Prefontaine, you know, the next generation through University of Oregon was, you know, Alberto Salazar uh, and Rudy Chapa. And, and, you know, they kind of dominated the NCAA. And before Alberto had even left college, he was calling his shots at, you know, the New York City Marathon, um, which he won three times in the the early 80s and in the Boston Marathon. And he was a household name by 1982, which is the year he won the Boston Marathon. And he had had some legendary battles with athletes. And, um, you know, he had chosen Nike as a sponsor, and he's widely seen as being sort of the first runner to receive a, you know, not a football, not an NFL or NBA um, size salary, but I think Nike paid him at 1250 you know, a quarter million dollars back in the day. And so, you know, professional running had gone from, you know, recreational running where if you wanted to compete in the Olympics, no races had prize money, no one was professional. You had to remain uh, an amateur to even compete in the Olympics. And, you know, that sort of ended around Frank Shorter's time. He won the 72 uh, gold medal in the Olympics and then was sort of robbed in the 76 Olympics by someone who was found to be, you know, doping on the East German uh, program. And so, you know, that changed everything. Doping in 76 was now all of a sudden a huge issue. The East German women, you know, didn't look like women anymore. They had been so dosed for so many years with so many steroids. And and so the, the sporting world was really sort of at a turning point. And, it, and then the Olympics, of course, then changed, you know, where professional athletes could then perform. And, and you know, Frank Shorter was sort of one of the first guys to start getting paid. But Alberto Salazar was then the next guy to start beating him and became you know, the next uh, most famous American athlete. And so long story short, Alberto had successfully overtrained himself, right. um, you know, and, and, and went into a, a period, a decade or longer of, you know, just uh, sadness and poor performances and throwing everything at the wall to improve his performance. Cause he had essentially, you know, destroyed his endocrine system and his testosterone had cratered. And his hormones were a wreck and he contemplated suicide and he, he had to, you know, retire from professional running. And he eventually, long story short, I'm trying to make it short, he ended up at Nike in the marketing department. That's what he'd studied at the University of Oregon. And so fast forward through, you know, the next, so there were about two decades of really lackluster American performance and Nike's an American brand, you know, created and born and bred here in Oregon. And so... Alberto with running at its core, right? I mean, that's, that's a piece of this too, is like, as this guy, Alberto Salazar is starting to really sort of dominate marathons in a brash sort of irreverent way. I mean, if you've read, you know, Phil Knight's uh, autobiography, Shoe Dog, like Nike is sort of coming up with a similar brashness and a similar like irreverence and trying to break through and break some of the rule. Like it's, it's kind of, part of their origin story is how the, you know, I, I could see how these two characters fit well together, the Phil Knight Nike brand and, and Salazar and his character as well. Yeah. Nike seemed to specifically seek out athletes from their first sponsored athlete, Natase, who was a tennis player. You know, he was known as a sort of a petulant child on the court and, and Nike, 
was attracted to these rebellious athletes, so to speak, that won. Um, and, and so it should be said, you know, Alberto won his last big race, the Boston Marathon. Or I shouldn't say that. He won in 94 as part of the story of the Comrades Marathon. But, you know, after he won Boston in 82, you, you got to remember Adidas was the global sports brand, the biggest global sports brand back then. So it wasn't until 83, the next, the following year, that Nike surpassed Adidas in worldwide sales, in part because, you know, of athletes like Alberto Salazar. You know, they were so prominent and all over the television and, and Nike's just masterful um, masterfully marketing them all with their commercials. And, and so, yeah, uh, Alberto had headed over to the Boston deli on the Nike campus in Beaverton, Oregon in 19, in 2001. And he sat down with a vice president at the time, Tom Clark, who was also a really experienced marathoner and, and they watched, you know, the Boston marathon proceed and were just kind of disgusted with Amer- the Americans, the American racers performance. Sure. You know, no, the, fastest or the best athlete i think finished sixth place and you know alberto had been the last american to win the race and so they they basically hatched a plan that day like all right well we've got these countries who are you know illegally supporting their athletes in some cases but whatever the case the east african countries are dominating the sport and americans are not no longer relevant and so they decided to put money and technology uh, and put Alberto at the helm of this team, the Nike Oregon Project. They weren't named that at the time. That name came later. But, um, you know, they decided to just put Nike's largesse behind, you know, a, a real running program that started early with collegiate athletes. And then they even worked backwards to high school athletes with Galen Rupp and a few others. For about 10 years, they really didn't do anything all that impressive. You know, without, with the exception of Kara, she was racing nationally pretty well especially as she got into marathons in the later stages of her career, but they hadn't had anyone in, on an international podium really. Um, and that all changed in 2011 with Galen Rupp and, and Mo Farah uh, going one and two at the Olympics. But that's the origin. So let's focus on um, just two characters that play so prominently in the story, Adam and Kara Goucher. You know, it's interesting. Like Adam's a character who's now sort of been detailed, in multiple books. I mean, I remember reading about Adam in Running with a Buffalo. Uh, I think it was Chris Lear's uh, documentation of a season at the University of Colorado's cross-country team. And Adam was sort of the star runner during that season. Yeah. Uh, later meets and marries Kara Goucher. And now the two of them as budding professional athletes are some of the the, the first prominent characters signed by Nike Oregon Project. Is that kind of because they were two big gets for that program early on, right? Yeah. Yeah. The team had, um, you know, Alberto had kind of dismissed the early years of saying, you know, we, we had, we had B players at one point when he was asked to sort of account for the first five years of the program or whatever. Um, I I guess that would only be three years of the program. So the Gouchers joined in 04 and really at first, you know, Kara, it's hard to realize this now because she became, you know, Nike's most prominent runner. But back in the day when they were recruiting the two of them, uh, Adam was the prominent runner. He was America's hope. He was, you know, Bob Kennedy had dominated the scene for years. And Adam was one of the first American athletes to ever beat him. And so it seemed as though Adam was next in line to be, you know, America's best runner. And he had signed with Fila out of college. And so Nike had to wait for him for quite a while. And then when they signed him, they kind of signed Kara as an afterthought. But they signed her nonetheless. And then Adam's career, you know, unfortunately, f- through probably some, some uh, witch's brew of overtraining and, 
and uh, Alberto's, I don't know, miscalculations with athletes that uh, his career started a nosedive and, and right. Kara became the prominent athlete on the team. Yeah, and the treatment of Kara was something that played a big, you know, it's a big thread in the book, whether it's sort of, you know, how she was treated as a female athlete relative to male athletes, how she was, um, you know, how, how, how her, her and Adam's um, sort of journey into parenthood was part of the story. And then her comeback from pregnancy. Talk about uh, Kara's experience. Cause she, I mean, you, you had to have had developed a pretty close source relationship with her. A lot of what she share, shares in the book is pretty courageous. Kara, you know, she she really grew close to Alberto. And so, you know, one thing that readers have to realize is for coaching athlete uh, experience and relationship to work, the athlete really has to buy into what the coach is telling them 100%. to do. You know, otherwise, the first time you're tired or you're asked to do something that you, you don't agree with, you just won't do it. And so one thing that Alberto did really well at the beginning was, you know, he fostered this sort of familial environment where, you know, they go to church together and they do all their workouts and treatments together. And so, you know, Adam, you know, he was just going after, uh, was just experiencing injury after injury. And, and so he focused even his own attention as he was recovering on, on Kara and her career and helping her psychologically. And, and Alberto and her grew to be very close through this period. And she really started to, you know, perform really well. She beat Paula Radcliffe at, at, at a, the Great North Run in England, which really kind of shocked people and, and sort of brought Kara to, to the forefront. And then Kara, you know, then subsequently went and was invited to the New York City Marathon and got to ride along in one of the cars and watched Radcliffe, who she just beat, you know, six months earlier or, or some, some such around there, uh, win the New York City Marathon again. And, and it really sort of ignited this idea in her that, you know, okay, maybe Alberto's right that I'm going to be a long distance runner and I'm going to be a marathon runner, which she'd never really been interested in before. And, you know, they had seen things that they didn't like um, throughout. And, it, you know, it just hadn't hit a tipping point yet where they were worried. You, know, you mean Adam, Adam and Kara had seen practices or you know, the way people were treated that just raised some red flags for them? Is that what yeah. you're saying? Okay. Yeah, 100%. I mean, they came to love Alberto. You know, Kara, in our first time we sat down with the yeah. recorder, you know, tearfully explained that to me and how she didn't want the book to be all bad. She's like, we had great times. Um, and, and so, part, you know, in, in deference to her, I, I really, I mean, in, in, in journalism and in journalistic integrity, basically, I, I tried to, you know, portray that in the book as like, look, this, these were you know, at least good times at the beginning. And they had just seen so many things that accumulated and they were naive when they started, they were young kids. So Kara described, you know, testosterone cream on the counter at an 07 training camp. Sure. And, and of course now in my, our modern setting and being who I am, I'm like, why didn't that raise any flags? And she had the, you know, her honest explanation is we were just so naive. Alberto, you know, he had had he had had a heart attack. And he had cream, and we just didn't really pay attention to what it was. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Jeff Meese, media technician at the College of Business, and you're listening to A New Angle. And we so trusted him that, of course, it wouldn't be, you know, anything illegal. And so, you know, it's sort of a, a slow and gradual unmasking of, 
you know, the depths of which he was willing to go. I mean, to be fair to him, uh, it, it doesn't, well, I can't even, I can't even begin to try to speak to him because some of the things I just can't logically explain even to this day why he would do certain things. But, you know, he kept going closer and closer to the line. And then, you know, of course, eventually he stepped over it. And that's why you saw it abandoned from sport. Um, well, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, because the culture of this team, the practices of this team you describe are not like the stories we hear from Armstrong and U.S. Postal. I mean, when we're talking about some of these 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 pro cyclist stories, you're talking about EPO and blood transfusions and growth hormone and like, you know, substances and practices that are clearly against the rules and they're the game they were playing was trying to beat the testing essentially whereas the culture you describe is trying to find areas that maybe aren't regulated yet advantages that aren't known broadly yet loopholes and just push the limits of gray as far as you can. So maybe kind of just paint the picture of maybe through an example of one of these practices. I think the, the, the L-carnitine infusions is, is a great example. Um, therapeutic use exemptions, things like that. Like this is a different type of performance maximization, right? Yeah. Yeah. The marginal gains that you heard about in cycling. Indeed. That's really what they seem to be going for. And it's the idea that, you know, Lance Armstrong described EPO as a 10 percenter, and he described all the other drugs as three, two, three, four percenters. Uh, and so, you know, EPO was a 10 percenter, meaning you kind of had to be on it if you wanted to compete. At least that's what he would argue. And, and these drugs, with the exception of testosterone, which we can talk about later, that Salazar was involved with, really were more, you know, they, ha- they had this ostensible deniability where a doctor would prescribe them and we didn't find out till later that oftentimes none of the athletes would test sort of out of the normal range for these drugs. So Salazar had a number of things he felt would help an athlete from, you know, high doses of vitamin D, which he was, so he was obsessed with that testosterone and he, he thought high doses of vitamin D would increase a, an athlete's testosterone. So he had all the athletes on, you know, 50 IUs twice, a, you know, twice a week, which is, that's a lot. That's a ton. I mean, that's, it's medical grade. And so that's why you need a prescription to have a, uh, that much uh, vitamin D, which is also a hormone prescribed to you. You can't just pick up that much uh, in a pill at, at your local drugstore. And so, you know, he had this pet theory and he tested it on his sons often. And, and he thought that helped. And the idea of marginal gains being if that's a one percenter, you, you know, you get 10 of these one percenters and you've got 10%. They're all going to equal maybe what an EPO would give you. And he wasn't necessarily wrong there, but, you know, he just started bumping up against the rules. And L-carnitine, you know, another Nike lab, performance lab uh, director had brought this to Alberto. He had just run into the research in his, in his daily work. And he said, you should look at L-carnitine. It looks like it helps athletes with fat metabolizing, um, meaning that they could uh, run further on fat fuel uh, without tipping and in, dipping into their carbohydrate stores, which then cause you to bonk, you know, in their limited stores during a, a marathon. And so... This would give an athlete extended endurance, basically. And so Alberto dug into that with this new assistant coach, Steve Magnus. And, you know, where they went wrong was really just because, so L-carnitine is an amino acid. It's hard to load into the muscle. 
Um, and so you need sugar to load it into the muscle. And they found that through the research, you know, injecting it or infusing it was the best way to get it instantly into an athlete's body. And the research was um, created and done by this Nottingham group who was then going to try to commercialize it by making a drink. Well, they found out when you drink L-carnitine, it takes months for it to actually absorb into the muscle. Um, and so Alberto just took the step of like, well, let's see how, we, how much we can infuse and still stay within the rules. But who knows what the conversations were going on behind closed doors, but you know, he eventually infused it in at least one athlete, probably many athletes, just at a, at a level that's not allowed. So you are not allowed to, um, you know, infuse 50 milliliters and more than 50 milliliters in a six-hour period. And so they found that if they did that, and the, and the first athlete he did it to was this assistant coach, Steve Magnus, who was also uh, a current athlete at the time. So it was a, a definite uh, violation of the rules. But, you know, they gave him a thousand milliliters, so way over you know, any ostensible sort of argument that we're doing this within the rules. And then from then on, they in, ingested, they infused it in, you know, athletes like Galen Rupp and, and Mo Farah and Dathan Ritzenheim, you know, many of the best runners in the world. And, and the doctor who was also banned with Alberto just stopped writing down the quantity of the infusion. Right. And so, you know, that's so obviously medical malpractice on some level. Like there's a few things you have to write down. And one of them is, the quantity of the drug that you're injecting. And so leaving that out just seems so suspicious, but it also got pretty much got them off uh, on being caught to have infused all the other athletes. Uh, but he did write down what he had infused Steve Magnus with. And so there's all this um, smoke around all the other athletes, but that's just, that's just one example. He frequently liked to, you know, he'd give female athletes diuretics so they could get their weight down. He would often change their birth control pills their birth control, I should say, in, in a way that, you know, they would menstruate less and keep, maintain more blood, maintain more red blood cells for, for running. And so, you know, everything was looked at, you know, literally from your birth control pills to, to your daily vitamin. Um, and he, you know, he just kept pushing that line and, and sort of obsessing over each and every one of them and to see if it would work. And it was really quite anecdotal. Would it work for that athlete? It wasn't, these weren't, you know, uh, you know, this wasn't properly set up research with placebo. It was, does Dathan run a little faster today after he's had his vitamin D for right. two weeks? And so it's sort of haphazard. And, and there's that in there lies the risk with the athletes. And, you know, that we can go into examples of that. But well, that, you know, I mean, that's a big part of it, too. And that, you know, some of this is Salazar's own theorizing, some of it, but but a lot of this work needs to happen. Um, yeah, in some sort of collaboration with a doctor and Dr. Brown is the character that you write about their relationship is an interesting one. Cause it sounds like sometimes whatever Salazar asks Dr. Brown to do, he'll do. And then other times Dr. Brown says no. And so the, the, their relationship is an interesting piece yeah. of that. And another thing we should mention are these therapeutic use exemptions, right? So there are certain categories of, of substances that if you've got a, a, a medically valid reason to use it, you can get an exemption for that. And doctors sort of adjudicate that process. And, you know, and Salazar pushed the limits of, of that exemption process. Uh, um, yeah. So maybe describe that relationship between Salazar and Brown. Yeah. So in 2004, you know, Adam had joined the team and almost immediately started to deal with injuries and, and issues. And 
he had won a national championship and was like I was telling you after Bob Kennedy, he was really supposed to be the next great American athlete, but he, he had cratered himself essentially. And I, I say that, I think we talked about this earlier, but I, I knew I, I had done that to myself. So I knew this yeah. feeling and he, you know, uh, after racing, after a track workout with Culpepper, another uh, famous American athlete, he like left the track in tears, checked himself into the ER and said, I'm, I'm feeling so terrible. You have to tell me what's going on. I'm headed to the Olympics. And so um, his his former coach at CU, Mark Wetmore, um, had told him about a, a doctor named Dr. Jeffrey Brown, who, you know, was being heralded in the sports scene, in the national sports scene as like the guy to go see. And he'd worked with Carl Lewis and other famous athletes. And his thing was uh, prescribing thyroid medications, uh, uh, thyroid hormones to athletes who probably didn't need it. We know that yeah. now. So he, extend, he, he claims to have extended Carl Lewis's career and he did that by giving him you know we think a thyroid medication um, which can you know works on your metabolism ups your metabolism allows you to uh, lose weight quicker when you're trying to get down to a race weight it gives you more energy throughout the day to train and salazar thought as he thought many drugs also helped increase testosterone there's very scant evidence of that but he had that pet theory and so, yeah, you really need, if you're going to work in these gray areas, you need a doctor to help prescribe you things. And so Adam went to see the doctor, got on thyroid medication, and it should be said that he didn't test out of range. You know, TSH, thyroid simulating hormone, you know, between 0.5 to up to 4.12 uh, million international units uh, is the range. And Adam tested squarely in that range, you know, like five times. So he was not someone a normal doctor would prescribe thyroid hormone to. Okay. But Dr. Brown prescribed it to him anyway, as he had done with, like I said, Carl Lewis and other athletes. And so Adam started racing better and feeling great. And then Alberto went to see the doctor. And now Dr. Brown's, you know, now Dr. Brown's in this weird, he has Alberto as a patient and mm-hmm. he has Nike as a, as a boss where they're paying him. And, but he's also responsible for the athlete's care. But as you, you know, there's a conflict here. So are you going to try to, regardless of the athlete's long-term health, are you just going to try to make them run really well in the next Olympics? Or are you going to do what you're supposed to, what you've, what you've, you know, taken an oath to do uh, for their long-term health? And it seems like he just started to fall towards the pressure of making great athletes. And it should, I mean, he, he loved this, you know, he would do presentations where he, you know, would claim that he helped uh, Carl Lewis and others, you know, come back from the brink and, and win uh, you know, subsequent uh, gold medals. And so he saw himself as this groundbreaking doctor. Uh, and so Adam seems to have connected him to the team. Then Kara went and saw him and, and the rest of the team sort of got in line to see Dr. Brown. And, you know, there was nothing nefarious back in the day at the beginning, uh, or at least maybe in Alberto's mind there was, but to the rest of the athletes, you know, a doctor was prescribing them this uh, substance. And so, Maybe some of them thought oh, this weird that I'm still in the range, but he thinks I should be on it. But they really did just trust their doctor wholeheartedly, and that yeah. So the relationship between the two of those, the two men, the doctor and the coach, it just evolved over time. Where uh, most of the time, uh, Doctor Brown seemed to be you know totally a team player and on Alberto's side, but there was a break. Uh, doctor Brown seemingly uh, really liked the limelight, and he did an interview with the wall street journal about his techniques. Um, and, and that, as far as I can tell, seemed to be the break between the two because Af- Alberto did not appreciate that. And Nike did not appreciate that. Dr. Brown was sort of spilling his secrets 
about the thyroid uh, hormones that he was uh, prescribing to the athletes to the rest of the world. And so the two had sort of a falling out there. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. I mean, USADA, you know, um, in 2015, the BBC and, and ProPublica, you know, had talked to enough people to amass uh, enough uh, information on the tactics to report further on it. And, and that sort of, uh, well, that and some whistleblowing really launched the USADA report and, and they chased down, you know, all credible leads. And, and that led to the suspension in September 30th, 2019. I mean, what you're describing in 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 this reporting is it, it almost seems more pernicious than you know the EPO growth hormone blood bag type of doping because in some instances it almost seems like the athletes like you said they're they're putting themselves in, in a physician's care and a coach's care and then they're being they're being you know prescribed medications that you know, if a doctor tells you you need a medication, okay, that seems that seems like a thing I should say yes to. Usually, like there's this power dynamic there, and then, yeah. and then so with something like L-carnitine, there's probably this like, hey, well, well, I've never heard of this thing. What is it? Is it legal? Like these athletes seem like they're in a in a position where they don't really. You know, we often put the choice to dope or not dope on the feet of the athlete, and then ultimately, like that's the person I guess who's is deciding whether to ingest something or not, but it's not quite so simple. And the, the, this is, this is part of the gray area too. Yeah. I mean, I, the way I explain it, you know, as you said, athletes are responsible for everything they put into their body. But if you imagine yourself, you know, with a six figure contract on the Nike campus running on the Michael Johnson track where Phil Knight can look out his window and see you every day, you know, you are in the most legit program that there is on earth with the most powerful coach. And you just don't go into that relationship assuming that he might lead you astray. But he did. I mean, he deeply betrayed all of these athletes. There are times where, you know, the athletes did at times protest, like you, like you, the quote kind of you were just alluding to is Dathan Ritzenine asking him like, Alberto, this doesn't seem legal. Like, is this legal? And he said, yes, of course it is. But what they were doing, you know, we found out later was, you know, just not writing down how much the infusion they were getting infused and, just kind of playing games uh, with the rules, assuming that USADA or no one would ever go back and look at the medical records. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it is ultimately the athletes and what they, they're responsible for what they put into their body. But, I mean, you have to empathize with them on some level, and I Absolutely. do throughout, yeah. I mean, even in my situation where a doctor I didn't know that well had offered me testosterone. I mean, I didn't think twice about it because it was testosterone, but if you imagine that in another you know, as being a lesser drug or one that no one's heard of, um, you know, you could take something not in your best long-term health interest, or even that could put you at risk of failing, um, a drug test, you know, just under the guidance of a doctor that you trust. And so with coach and doctor, both telling you, you have to do this, you know, the power dynamic comes in here where Alberto would sort of hold contracts over athletes heads. And he did that with Dathan Ritzenheim for sure. They stopped paying him at one point. And, um, you know, Steve Magnus, also the assistant coach was he told me you know they just stopped paying me at some point and when i brought it up to alberto he said he'd go look into it and and he ultimately you know in hindsight thought no he was trying to manipulate me he was letting me he was reminding me that i can stop these checks at any time yep the power the power dynamic yeah so let's so we've given i think hopefully the audience a great a lot of great reasons to check out the book win at all costs 
But I'd like in our remaining time, uh, Matt, if you could indulge me, let's pull the lens back a little bit and talk about what you've learned about endurance sports, culture of performance. It's really easy to throw up your hands and sort of feel like anything you see in the Olympics or in professional sports is not real. How, how do you feel about sport in general and kind of the ethics of sport and maximizing performance? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. And I'm, I'm working that out every day. Um, yeah. I'm, I mean, it was terribly disheartening. I talked to in my work before the book, but then for the book, I talked to some experts on performance enhancing drugs and, you know, they'd been around the block. These are names you've probably known or have read in the paper before, but they basically would say things like, you know, anything on television, there's such a financial incentive there that they're doing that these are the uh, corrupted sports, the ones you see on TV, the ones with money in them. And, and you know, Adam had this, you know, uh, as I quote him in the book, he thought 90% of American sports are corrupted and or sport is corrupted in general. I mean, he meant tennis and golf and all of them. And, you know, it's impossible to know how true that is. I fear that it's that that's that is actually the truth where there's enough money in it you know, athletes are going to cheat. Um, so it was terribly disheartening to realize that um, on some level. But then, you know, I have to say, on the very same campus, there's a coach named Jerry Schumacher who is an honest and honorable man. Seemingly. Yeah, he seemed like a fantastic character. Yeah. I mean, I was just blown away with him. And he he was there at the same time as Alberto. And, you know, he kept his moral compass, uh, so to speak, you know, pointed in the right direction, I guess. He was, he managed to, in this environment, uh, this, this win at all costs world of, of Nike, you know, he managed, he, he had been hired. So Alberto had a heart attack in 2007 and they hired Jerry Schumacher from University of Wisconsin, this, you know, heralded coach to take his place because they didn't know how long Alberto was going to last. You know, he was tired and he was having other symptoms later on. He thought he was having another heart attack. And so they're like, well, We've got Galen Rupp and Kara Goucher. We've got America's Best Runners. We better get them a backup coach. And so they hired Jerry. And as it turned out, Alberto got, you know, came back to full health and, and stayed on to coach. But you know, Jerry just instantly came in and like clashed away from Alberto. He couldn't, he couldn't bring himself to believe in all of these tricks and tactics that Alberto was doing, you know, the obsession with supplements and, and that kind of thing. And so he clashed and, and went off and started coaching the Bowerman Track Club, which still exists today. But it just goes, you know, it just goes to show like a guy with that kind of moral fortitude, I guess, is able to navigate those waters. And so he, those waters, even though like he's literally in the belly of the beast, you know, like the, the, the expe- expectations on his team are just as severe as they were for Alberto's team. But he couldn't bring himself to believe in, in this. What he saw is sort of just nonsense, you know, wasting your time on supplements when you know if you eat right sleep right and train right we know those work and that's 90 percent of you know making a great athlete um and so he just leaned into those and he gave me you know great hope as did steve magnus who who quit the program and whistle blew and now has gone on to um you know coach at the university level and you know become somewhat of a, a famous coach now um even though you know alberto of course tried to discredit him uh throughout the process but those guys give me hope that they're doing, willing to and, and doing it right. I mean, I, I say this in the end of the book, you might have catched the drift there that like, will people stick around to watch professional track and, and road running through all this? And that's really me. I, I mean, I, that's, that's what I was feeling. 
at the end of the book. Like, can I even, you know, now that I've finished this book on this sport, can I, will I even sit down to watch? And I think I do still, but often for the wrong reasons, uh, for yeah. the train wreck rather than the uh, inspirational athletes. I remember the arc I went through with professional cycling. I mean, the Armstrong years in the Tour de France that was some of the most fun yeah. sports fandom I ever experienced. Like we would, we would watch these things. It was, it was, it was the hero, the drama, but also like whatever you know substances they were on. It made for like incredibly <laughs> compelling sport to watch. Yeah. And it's, you know, the sport is kind of, you know, who knows what's happening in the sport now, but it's lost some of that excitement. You can talk about why that is. There's a bunch of reasons, but that's part of it too. It's like, I don't know if I'm interested in an F NFL where players are slower and can't jump as high. It is entertainment and ultimately the entertainment dollar is what drives it. And so it creates this weird, um, complicated set of incentives, um, and the morality behind all those things is is very confusing. Yeah, it always seemed to it mattered more to me when I was trying to be one of those athletes. I don't know. Yeah, for that. sure. Yeah, yeah. And now, like you said, you can possibly we can look at it more just for the entertainment factor. But when it feels unfair because you're one of the athletes, and we were in a different sport, but to imagine people cheating and ultra running, you know, would have infuriated us. You know, we wanted a fair we wanted a fair chance at you know, winning a race or performing well. And so that is one aspect that's obviously long faded for me. But, you know, I mean, there's a number of arguments that Armstrong makes, you know, everyone was doing it, which is completely untrue. And well, if we're all on the same drugs, you know, there, so even within, if you're all using the same drugs, as you know, like there's a, there's a genetic range here of who's a hyper responder and who might not respond sure. at all. Yeah, it's EPO. another variable. So even if you're all on the same drugs, I hate this argument because no one points it out. You might be a hyper responder to EPO and I'm not. Or, or, or you know, as they know, as we know from, from the books about the Tour de France days, Tyler Hamilton, for instance, was had, I think it was a 96 hermaticrit and Armstrong was 92. So Armstrong could double, basically dope twice as much yep. before, he hit that, before he hit that 50% magic line that they would test the athletes for. And so, so Tyler could only dope a little bit but Lance could dope a lot, and, you know, and, and it's just like, that's not even, that's not obviously not a, a level playing field that everyone thinks would miraculously exist if we could all just dope. And then the risks to the drugs, you know, Salazar had the athletes on calcitonin because he, this drug he thought helped with um, stress fractures. And one of the athletes brought up to him like, Hey uh, guys, this is correlated with increased cancer risk. And so they freaked out and took the team off it. But there's the risk in like trying anything and throwing anything at the wall. You know that these some of these substances are are dangerous. Uh, you know, and in, and in certain combinations for certain athletes, um, you know, really dangerous. And so I I can't get on board with the wild west uh, sort of uh, argument. But you know, when you're outside of the sport, like we were just talking about, and and it, it's just entertainment for you. Yeah, you do want them to be able to do the 360 windmill dunk and jump higher and, and run faster. Uh, but at what at what risk to their lives? You know, I, I'm torn with the UFC, which I love to watch. But I know, you know, it's leaving, Ultimate these, fighting. Yeah, it's leaving yeah. these athletes with brain damage, you know, as is football. And, uh, you know, it's very complicated. These are nuanced issues. I mean, that's one of the reasons. I mean, that's what I tried to do in the book. You know, this is a complicated 
uh, nuanced story. Alberto is a human being. You know, he's not he's not evil incarnate. He's not all bad or all good. He's a, a nuanced human being that's made mistakes, as have I. We all have. You know, Nike is the same way. I treat them the same way. There's great people there. There's people who make, you know, uh, silly or bad mistakes in an effort to win at all costs. And and so hopefully the book, you know, book length treatment of this story, I think, was necessary to really lay that out. Like this is definitely not black and white and it's not Armstrong, you know, injecting EPO with breakfast before he goes to dominate the tour. 100%. Well, Matt, this has been fantastic. Um, congratulations on the book. And so great to kind of learn more about the behind the scenes of, of how it came to be. Uh, I know it's a dangerous question to ask writers, but um, what's what's next for you other than fatherhood? But what's next? Yeah, yeah. Fatherhood's coming up quick. But, uh, you know, I'm working on a story for The New Yorker, which has kind of been a dream of mine along this. Indeed journalism route and i i know i'm at risk of saying that because you know you never know in this uh in this industry what's going to get published and what's not but uh that's pretty much what i'm focused on now and kind of working on a new book idea but yeah those are the two things really well i look forward to a time when uh we can get together share some time on the trail on the bikes yeah. on the skis whatever it is um best to you and your uh soon to be family uh and congratulations again on the book Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate the chat. It was fun. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot with support from the University of Montana College of Business and Consolidated Electrical Distributors. AJ Williams is our producer. Jeff Ament, John Wicks, and VTO made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at newmontana.edu. If you like what you heard, tell your friends about it. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.